Hey folks, welcome to the AABIP podcast. This is Samir Avasarala from Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine in Cleveland, Ohio. I'm your host for today's episode. Thank you all for joining us today. It'll be a great discussion about a topic that involves a good bit of multidisciplinary care, the management of persistent air leaks. Today, we're truly fortunate to have Dr. Dave DiBardino join us. Dave is an interventional pulmonologist, the director of the IP Fellowship at Penn, and an associate professor of clinical medicine medicine at the Perlman School of Medicine. Welcome, Dave. Dave, do you have any co- relevant conflicts of interest to disclose? Thanks, Samir, for the introduction. Um, I have received some consulting fees from Olympus, which could potentially introduce a conflict. Okay. As a reminder, the views expressed on this podcast are those of the speaker and myself and not necessarily endorsed by the AABIP. With the formalities done, let's get started. You know, persistent air leaks are a difficult to treat condition and they often inquire multi, require multidisciplinary expertise and input, you know, including a close interplay between interventional pulmonary and thoracic surgery. If you go through the literature, many approaches have been described However, the majority of the data is limited to a case series. Needless to say, management strategies vary. Let's get more insight from our experts. Dave, definitions are important. What do you tell your trainees about what a persistent air leak actually is? Yeah, you know, I think one of the reasons this aspect of interventional pulmonology is um, interesting and sometimes frustrating is that um, the air leaks can just be so idiosyncratic, you know, mm-hmm. and they can often be um, erratic in their behavior. And so I've always stuck to a definition of an air leak for at least seven days. Now, I mean, personally, I, I think that that's a reasonable definition for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that if memory serves, you know, when some of the medical device related solutions to this were being explored, such as the spiration valve and the humanitarian device exemption mm-hmm. was pursued with the FDA, you know, experts got together to sort of think about, you know, when was an air leak going on long enough that something like a permanent um, or at least kind of so not, maybe not permanent, but, but six week, uh, semi long-term implant um, would be validated or sort of worth it. And I think in that setting, sort of five to seven days was a pretty consensus opinion there. And I think the other reason why that makes sense is that I think we start to think about leaks as things that keep people trapped in the hospital. And so- Sort of sometimes I think about persistent air leaks as air leaks that are now leading to people being at risk for um, nosocomial complications. And I think while I'm sure nosocomial infections and DVT is going to occur sooner than one week, I feel like at that sort of five to seven day mark, you know, it's very often that people's acute issues are under control and they seem to be just trapped in the hospital, sedentary, sort of attached to suction. And at that point in their hospitalization, I feel like they're pretty vulnerable. So that's kind of why I like that one week definition. 
Yeah, I, I agree with everything you said. You know, for me, it's it's if it's before five days, I would just say, hey, continue chest tube management between five and seven. It's, eh, it's probably a persistent air leak. And after seven, I would say it definitely falls into that care category. So I think the channels of how these patients kind of come on our radar can vary based on where we practice in. So at Penn, how do these patients usually get referred to you or how are you consulted on them? Does thoracic surgery see them first or do your consults come from somewhere else? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, they're almost always inpatient consults where either we're being called for an initial pneumothorax, you know, sure. we'll place a chest tube and we'll kind of be primary in a way. Or um, I think a main avenue is that patients with an air leak and a chest tube placed by a different service, they'll often get consults from thoracic surgery and interventional pulmonology kind of simultaneous once the primary team is, is sort of throwing their hands in the air to say, you know, geez, we don't know what to do here. I, at Penn, uh, we, we think we're fortunate to have um, thoracic surgery collaborators who almost always would like to co, you know, kind of co-consult on these cases and ask us, what options we see from our end before offering a surgical solution. And I think once in a while, they may directly, you know, sort of surgically manage a patient like this without us being consulted. But in our practice, and I would really want to hear what you think about this too, Samir, I feel like a lot of the patients in this condition are not fit for surgery, you know, and I think the one thing that was always shocking for every IP trainee, and I can remember, you know, being a fellow seven years ago and learning this, is that you, you kind of read about how to deal with persistent air leak, and you realize that every single recommendation is sort of surgical. And, and then you realize that the patients in your practice aren't, candidates for surgery and you're sort of left scratching your head. And so I think it's kind of uncommon um, in our practice to have a sort of surgical, um, a surgically viable patient who would just get a sort of thoracic surgery consult and never have us weigh in. And I think it's because a lot of these patients have secondary spontaneous pneumothorax from emphysema or interstitial lung disease, you know? Yeah. I hear what you're saying. Um, uh, typically our, our practice here is very similar to there. B both services are involved in whether um, the, the patient is able to get thoracic surgery or there's something else that our surgical colleagues are, are going to offer concurrently or upfront first to see if it's going to work. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about other things that we can do for persistent air leak. But uh, I think this is one of those things that is a, is a really, really good example of how interventional pulmonary and thoracic surgery uh, provide multidisciplinary care to the patients that we're taking care of in the hospital. Yeah. And the other question I had is, uh, in, in your current practice, uh, y'all are using standard chest tube drainage systems to kind of, kind of monitor these leaks or something fancier like a, a topaz? You know, we're almost exclusively using just the bread and butter old school drainage systems, regular old standard Pluravax and, and atriums. The, um, you know, I, I, there is one 
site that we cover or, or one of the pen hospitals that we cover that does have digital um, drainage systems that, that are kind of restricted. Like not everybody is allowed to get one, but mm-hmm. for certain post-op patients, they're on like limited launch. And um, I, we, I guess we've never really found that that information is all that valuable because something that we're going to get into later. So I'm not going to steal your thunder here because I know we're going to be be getting into this is that ultimately a lot of times when we're deciding how aggressive to be with this, instead of using like a measurement from a chest tube box or how loud the air leak is and all those kind of things that we all naturally get caught up over when we kind of see these patients and how dramatic these, these can be yeah. is really the fact that what do they do on a Heimlich valve? You know, and I think when those, we'll talk about that later, but we're really, really big proponents of that test almost as a, as a real kind of governor of whether evasive procedures are warranted because it'd be surprised, you know, how often somebody can tolerate, a pneumothorax on a Heimlich valve and leave the hospital, you know, to hopefully heal over time. And those are often really big wins, you know, where you can save someone procedures. And, and I don't, I don't know that like a fancy digital chest strain or topaz would really help me beyond just that test, if you will. Yeah. So I'm glad you brought that up. The Heimlich valve is, is a great tool and it brings me to my, my next question. Uh, so, so you've been consulted on a patient with a persistent air leak, and and they either can't, which is very likely the the scenario, or or don't want surgery. What's your treatment ap- approach? Walk us through what you do. Yeah, I, I think that what we do is, as we alluded to, we take a look at how long the leak's been there. Obviously, so you know, trying to restrict the conversation now to people who have had a leak for longer than about a week. Um, in that scenario, will really what I like to do now, which is a little bit more of kind of the evolution of endobronchial valve um, knowledge, is I like to take a look at their CAT scan. And if they don't have an up to date CAT scan since they had a pneumothorax, you know, they should get one at that point. Yeah. Because what I want to know is, you know, is there a uh, definite, you know, single lung injury? And, you know, it's easy when these are iatrogenic um, because you know where the leak is coming from. But when there's sp- secondary spontaneous pneumothoraxes, um, you know, you often don't know. And, and if you can get any clues from visceral pleural defects on CAT scan, it's really nice to try to localize it. And then the second thing that affords you is to look at their fissures, um, you know, because even though I still find... Um, and the bronchial valves or persistent air leak a kind of mystical experience sometimes because sometimes they help or don't help in cases where it really seems like they should. But um, I really want to get a sense of their fissures and see if they're kind of grossly incomplete before rushing to a valve procedure. Because obviously if the fissures are sort of grossly incomplete, you know, there, there may really not be a role for even taking someone to the OR to balloon occlude and test out whether a valve will help them. 
Um, so I really start there. If the imaging is not favorable, such that there's an obvious uh, incompetence in their fissure, or there are more than one visceral pleural defects, you know, then I think it's always nice to clarify um, how they feel on a Heimlich valve. I really do. And I think there is this sort of cultural uh, and maybe dogma influenced a fork in the road here where some people will say well on a Heimlich valve they had a pneumothorax on their x-ray you know despite being clinically stable sure. and able to walk around and therefore you know you can't leave them like that they'll develop a trapped lung and have some complications and I don't exactly know if that's true and where that comes from I, I think that I understand the theoretical problem with having someone with a partially deflated lung, you know, getting into trouble at home, uh, if their chest tube becomes clogged, if they were to develop a secondary, you know, pleural infection from the chest tube, and now they have a trapped lung. I see that that can be very problematic, but but I, we've had lots of patients tolerate a sort of pneumothorax clinically while on a Heimlich valve. And have a lot of success with them then leaving in that condition with healing of their pleural defect over time um, and getting re-expansion of their lung at that time. I'm so curious to know if you ever encounter that fork in the road. Um, if either you're having a, uh, I mean, but, but, but a lot of those patients don't clinically tolerate the Heimlich valve. Yeah. And so in that scenario, something that you know we're going to get into a little bit um i am a believer in the blood patch at that point um i've had some big wins with blood patches in that clinical scenario and i think it's the only type of pleurodesis that really you know kind of has multiple mechanisms at which it might help an active air leak and so what all often recommend in that scenario is uh, you know a blood patch where what we do is you know you harvest about 100 cc's of blood okay and then we we take the pleurivac we take it off suction so implicit in this is that you have to tolerate you know being off suction for at least a little while you know Absolutely. 20 minutes to an hour um, and then we'll have the chest tube on water seal but we'll put the chest tube drainage box up on a bedside table kind of at the level of their chest um, and then we'll inject the blood and flush the blood very very thoroughly because you really don't want to clog the chest tube with the blood and and hopefully in that case you know the blood's not going to just simply drip right back out of the chest tube because you've got the pleurivac up above their chest um, the chest wound entry point her chest tube entry incision but if there were to develop, you know, positive intrapleural pressure beyond the couple sort of centimeters of water pressure you've created by elevating their chest tube box above them, um, that that air can leak out and keep them from an emergency. Um, and if people can tolerate being on water seal for at least 20 to 30 minutes, I, I like to try that. It could obviously be repeated. Uh, you can obviously go right back to suction if they get into trouble. Um, and it's really something I've had a couple really impressive wins with there, you know, there, there is this cautionary tale about doing that. Um, 
in that a you can clog a chest tube and b it can cause uh, pleural infection. Sure. Um, yeah. And I just I think that I haven't seen those things be as big of a problem, you know, with proper chest tube care. Um, and some of these wins I've had with blood patches like are, are so memorable that I'll never forget them. So I like that that pathway. Um, now, if they had an isolated pleural defect and their fissures looked intact, low threshold really to evaluate them for an endobronchial valve. I really, you know, if they can't handle a Heimlich, I really like that as an option if their anatomy is amenable. Yeah, I I agree. You know, the blood patch is one of probably one of the most cost effective things that we can do. <laughs> Absolutely, free, you, you need a cannula that's uh fairly working to draw the blood out and um make sure you're doing it in a, in a sterile fashion. And chest tube's already in, so uh, very very cost effective. With with valves, uh, you folks using um, Olmolinex valves or uh, Olympus valves, a mix of both. Yeah, you know, it's it's a little bit more um, logistical. And actually, if, if it's of interest to the listeners, I can expand on that if you want. It's not really, you know, clinical medicine, but it's more about um, just pragmatic considerations. We, at one time, were only using spiration. Um, we had a time where we were using either, and now we're only using Zephyr valves, pulmonic brand valves. Um but it's never been a matter of um, uh, choosing a brand over another. It's really yeah. just been about working with the hospital formulary kind of plans and all that. And, um, you know, to me, I I think that it is faster and easier to place a Zephyr valve. And I think it's faster and easier to remove a spiration valve. So, you know, it's sort of like, do you want to have pain now or in six weeks? <laughs> you know, so I, I think that there's a pro and a con to either. And I don't I don't know why one would theoretically be better for the patient than the other. So, um, you know, I, I think that's the way we've approached it. I think now we've gotten pretty comfortable with Zephyr valves. And, and again, if I can expand on that if you want, but everything really clinically, it's just that one nuance difference between sort of easier to place versus easier to remove. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, unfortunately, logistics uh, have a lot to do with the, the care that we offer our patients. Um, yeah. I, I want to ask you a particular question about the pathways that you described. So let, let's imagine you, you saw a patient persistent air leak has a, a, a 14 French uh, pneumothorax catheter in. It's been there eight days um, tolerating water seal, you, you change them to a kind of a Heimlich valve. They're doing great clinically. You're radiographically, they're still a little bit pneumothorax. You're, you're, you're sending these patients home? Yeah, yeah, actually we are. You know, it can become almost like a, a fun uh, MacGyver exercise for the IP fellows. And, and we are, we're constantly trying to figure out what the best device to send them physically out with is, um, where we've sort of landed is that, um, you know, our, our, uh, Heimlich valves end in a cone, right. Which I think all of them do. Um, so sort of a cone shaped piece of plastic. And so one thing that the two main options we use is, 
there is a drainage bag. It's literally called a drainage bag. It's uh-huh. stocked in central supply for interventional radiology. It's not a Foley catheter bag, but it's a, it's truly a, a drainage bag meant for like abscess drains, the different drains they use in IR. That, that device or that, that, that bag is sort of a leg bag, like a bag you can strap to your calf or thigh and its tubing is similar to sort of rigid suction tubing, not not rigid bronchoscopy, but just, you know, the, the hard plastic sure. suction tubing that, that everybody uses for every chest tube hookup. Um, and, and it's basically large enough that it could accommodate a, a cone directly. So you could either sort of cut off any adapter that's at the end of it with scissors or if it comes with a blind end on it, you can just shove it onto a Heimlich valve directly. That's something that um, you can do if there's a way for the air to escape, you know, so the bag would have to have some kind of vent port on it. And some of them do have that. Um, The, because a lot of the ones we have don't, what we often do, what we more often do is we, we take a lure or a Lucan's trap, like the same trap we use for BALs. Okay. And the soft, really sort of pliable, soft silicone end of that, which is kind of a long, um, you know, kind of a, a, like a rubbery adapter piece. That piece you can shove onto the cone of a, uh, of a Heimlich valve. And then, Obviously, the other aspect of the lid, the white plastic lid of the Lucan's trap is just a hole, you know, so the air will come out to the atmosphere. Um, And that's nice. And we usually put a piece of gauze inside the Lucan's trap. That's nice for patients who don't drip chlorofluid like onto their bed and their clothing. Um, And so that's ultimately kind of like the sleekest thing we've come up with. And um, when you're sending someone home for simply a pneumo and not not sort of a empyema tube setup which is a whole nother discussion really like the the heimlich valve to lucan's trap setup um and then what we do is you know we, we try to have them get set up with some kind of home nursing care because you know they can't really shower or submerge in a bath or swim so they they do need advice on just bathing and skin care and then because it's just painful and and cumbersome to have that at home we try to have them come back weekly okay and get a chest x-ray you know right before they see us and then if it's you know you can just look at the heimlich valve bladder and see if the bladder is moving although i hate trusting that so i usually take some sterile saline and i'll take the lucan's trap off of the heimlich and i'll submerge the heimlich in a little basin of sterile saline and have them cough, you know, and see if there's an air leak. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. And if the, if the x-ray looks good and there's no air leak on that maneuver, then it's a little bit of dealer's choice, you know, but I think out of being conservative, because these people usually have like high risk pneumothoraxes, we usually clamp the tube and make them wait around for an hour or two and repeat the film if the film is normal, we'll take the chest tube out that day in clinic. So we'll, we'll try to do that type of visit weekly. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, I think my record is about six weeks where I had a patient have to kind of come back six times 
But finally, at that six-week visit, they had a resolved pneumothorax, and we were able to pull the tube. Um, I, I don't. I honestly, I can't think of someone who could tolerate a Heimlich valve. You know, who was clinically stable on a Heimlich valve, who left with the Heimlich valve set up, and then had to be kind of brought back in for surgical or valve based kind of procedural intervention you know it's been maybe that's luck but it's been my experience that the people that have tolerated a heimlich valve really have a high likelihood of healing the visceral pleural defect on their own um but curious to, to, to your experience to that as well i'm always trying to pick people's brain about that yeah i think some of that comes down to uh you know patient selection and also working in if uh they're able to make these follow-up appointments etc cetera, etc cetera. so a, a lot of uh, real work circumstances come into play about making yeah. decisions. I I agree with you though. I mean, you said six weeks, but that's six weeks uh, that patient spent out of the hospital versus several days to weeks they may have spent in the hospital for something else to be done. So that's that's a great pathway. I've had more experience with uh, the Heimlich and also the pneumostat, which sounds like it gets done some of the things that you're describing in some instances the mini atrium. I, I think on your on the podcast here, you just trademark uh, you know the pen pouch and the pen stat. That's what it sounds like. You're <laughs> yeah, probably should if I was savvier, maybe I would. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I've seen those those mini atriums that they look very user friendly. I um, I, I we don't have them necessarily stocked, but but I, I we've had some patients come from outside with them, and they, they did look very user friendly and accomplishing the same goal. You know, I think you know, patient centered, it's, it's hard to be leaking drips of fluid all over constantly. And, you know, we try to find some way to connect a a device that'll collect a little bit of fluid. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Dave, this has been great. You know, I, I want to ask you, um, I think this is a good time for kind of closing remarks here. Anything you feel like we left out that's important to discuss? Not so much. I, I think that you know, with our valve patients, we always try to bring them back in six weeks to remove the valves, had good success with that. And, um, you know, in cases of, of sort of stump leaks or other surgical leaks, it's a different conversation. But, but I think we sort of covered, you know, the kind of our normal pathway here at Penn as it relates to these secondary spontaneous pneumothoraxes that cause persistent air leaks, which I think is the most common kind of patient that we see with this. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate your time. I'm sure our listeners uh, will get a lot listening uh, to this episode. I've learned a lot about what the approach is at Penn, and um, it's nice to hear about these uh, tools that y'all put together. Um, I look forward to having you on for another episode where we can uh, discuss something else within the world of IP. Well, that would be great. I really appreciate uh, you reaching out and hope the listeners got something out of it. Wonderful. Thanks, Dave. All right. Take it easy.